Welcome to Dollars to Donuts with Steve Portugal. Hi, and welcome to Dollars to Donuts, a podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. I'm Steve Portugal. If you are curious about developing your team's user research superpowers, or if you want a partner in discovering and acting on new insights, get in touch at portugal.com. You can also buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Rosenfeld Media and Amazon. Greg Bernstein is the manager of customer research at MailChimp. He's willing to let me say here that he makes his own jam, which turns out not to be true at all, but his willingness serves to reveal the accommodating and kind aspects of his character. He does confirm that he's been a professor and has been known to get up at 4 a.m. to go running. I met him recently at a MailChimp event, and I enjoyed the chance to hang out together, and I'm psyched to welcome him here on Dollars to Donuts. Thanks, Greg, for being part of this. Um, let's start maybe by having you just describe a little bit about your company. What does MailChimp do? What do you do there? Sure. So I work at MailChimp, uh, and we primarily sponsor podcasts, but there's also a business model behind it. <laughs> we make uh, email software, uh, software to make and send email newsletters. Uh, so that's the primary business right there. Uh, and what I do at MailChimp is manage the customer research team. Uh, and that's another way of saying the qualitative researchers. So when you put the word qualitative, it makes me think there's other people that are involved with other types of data. Is that, that correct? That is correct. Uh, uh, we work hand-in-hand hand with a quantitative research team, uh, a group of data scientists. So together, we are like the Reese's Pieces of research. We have the chocolatey goodness and the peanut butter, the quantitative and the qualitative, and together we get a better picture of who our customers are and what they're trying to do with our software. I think the Reese's Pieces qual-quant metaphor is something that should go viral. I, I hope it does. I'm sure it's unoriginal. It was probably said by somebody much smarter and much more original. But if you want to give me credit, that's fine. I'm going to attribute it to you because I think Reese's Pieces is a nice evolution. It, it's not even the peanut butter cup. It's all the way to the, the snackable form. There you go. All right, yeah. I'll take it. Okay, good. So, okay, so, so what's, what does your role entail then in terms of leading this group? My role is to align the company's uh, business interests and the interests of our developers and designers uh, with the information that we have on hand and the information that we need to collect. So if I could see what projects are coming up, I can speak to my team and we can figure out what secondary uh, research data we have, you know, from previous surveys, previous interviews, uh, from the data that we get from web traffic. Uh, and then I can suggest other avenues of exploration. You know, maybe we need to do some interviews. Maybe we need to do new surveys. So it's just a lot of managing what streams of data we have already and what do we need to augment that. I really love one of the things that you just said, which is that you're working proactively. You're looking to see what's coming uh, in terms of uh, design and development, and you're making recommendations as to how you can inform that. Is, is that right? That is right. Uh, typically, we have a roadmap for the year or even beyond the year of not products that we specifically want to build, but just ideas. For instance, uh, what does e-commerce look like for a MailChimp customer? 
And so what we can do is we can try not to reinvent the wheel. We can look at what we've already done uh, or what our customers who are e-commerce customers are already doing. So we collect our secondary data. Uh, we try to figure out what holes there are in that secondary data, and then we augment it by doing a survey or going to visit customers in their workspaces, in their offices or in their homes. Uh, and we try to put it all together and say, okay, here's what we already knew. Here's what we just found out. And then we can translate that into uh, not quite feature recommendations, but ideas about what our customers are attempting, uh, what their day looks like, what other software they use. And we try to give our designers and developers and our marketing team uh, a fuller sense of who our customers are and what they're trying to do and why they would come to MailChimp to do something. And so the, the roadmap that you're referring to is, where is that coming from? So what's interesting about working at MailChimp is we say that ideas can come from anywhere. So, of course, ideas come from the top down. We have a CEO, and he's a very sharp guy, and he, he points us in a direction. But we also can get ideas just from support tickets to come in. We will see a constant complaint, and we will wonder, is there something here that we could make better? Or are we hearing about another piece of software uh, with which we should integrate? Uh, and so the difference between MailChimp and maybe other places is that we have the agency then to say, this is a valid idea. Let's research it. Let's see if there's something to this. And then we can act upon it. And we can present the data to the developers and designers. And we can actually turn that into either a refinement to our existing software or it can become a totally new product. So you, as, as researchers, you have um, autonomy to maybe not total autonomy, but you have some level of autonomy in terms of where can you use these these tools to provide, I mean, the tools of research. Where can you use the tools of research to provide value to other parts of MailChimp and ultimately to the end users you're serving? So as researchers, we do have the autonomy to, to say, you know, I think we have some secondary data sources that could answer a question or that can point us in a direction. Or we could say, you know, there's something on our roadmap that we're not quite sure about. We really need to go out into the field and study this further. So why don't we send out a survey, and then why don't we go visit these five cities where we see this type of activity. Let's interview 20 people, and then we'll have a better sense of, of what we're looking at and what we need to do. So the, uh, the methodology is really up to us. You know, the direction is there. We know what needs to be, what not what needs to be built, but we know what we're trying to understand. And then as researchers, we have the autonomy to shape the research. Right. And then um, going further in terms of how we present that information, we do a lot of uh, different types of sharing. You know, sometimes a simple email with a few bullet points is all it takes to, to share what we know. Sometimes, though, we need to travel into the field with a videographer and create a pretty much a short film that we can share with everybody in the company so that they, they can better understand what we're seeing uh, and see the space in which somebody might use MailChimp. Uh, one thing that I've learned is that there's no substitute for seeing somebody's office or their, where they work. And it's not just because you get a sense for what kind of machinery they're using, what kind of uh, software they're using, but, you know, is it loud or is it quiet? Uh, are they on a really old Dell or a brand new Mac? There's all this contextual data that it's going to impact how our designers design. Because if somebody's using an old monitor, well, 
very subtle color palettes aren't going to fly. They won't be able to see the differences. Uh, somebody who's using a really old Dell or even gateway computer uh, is not going to have the processor speed to do certain things that we might have in mind. So we'll show a video, and it kind of opens everyone's eyes to, oh, this is not every customer is you know a rocket scientist. That sounded terrible. Not every customer has the newest and greatest equipment and software. Some people are getting by with old equipment because their business hasn't upgraded yet. So we'll, we'll do customer videos. We'll create posters. Maybe somebody can just learn by osmosis by walking by a poster of some different MailChimp personas. So not only are the researchers designing the studies, but they're also shaping how we present it to get the best output uh, and get the best impact around the company. It seems to me that uh, the researchers uh, really developing sort of the methodology of sharing is is not done as much as developing the methodology of let's just call it gathering. Um, you know, research methodologies versus sharing methodologies. You guys sound like you're very mindful of you know uh, building a palette and expanding it and, and making choices and trying new things to in order to have the impact that you want to have. And yeah, that's true. Uh, we realized that, you know, a Google Doc is valuable as, as an archival piece of information, as a, as a historical document, but not everyone is going to learn from reading a Google Doc, and not everyone has the time to scroll through and read everything. So we try to use as many methodologies of sharing as possible. One thing that we've uh, tried to do is make everyone a researcher, and we've done that by creating a, a business Evernote account where every interview transcript, every article that we stumble across, every every research artifact is in Evernote so that anybody in the company who has a question can at least start somewhere and see what do we already know about this. For some people, that is all they need. That's a great way for them to learn what's being researched at MailChimp. Other people need videos, so we try to create video artifacts from our customer interviews. Uh, and we'll get together on a Friday morning, we'll serve coffee and donuts, and we'll show three customer videos, each of them about 12 minutes long, and then we'll have a conversation about what we saw. If we do a usability test, you know, we'll bring in some nachos, we'll get the developers, designers, the QA team involved, and we'll show footage of the usability tests. And for some people, they need to see it. Uh, they don't want to see the actual usability test, they want to see the highlights. We try to give a variety of... Uh, I guess a variety of avenues to learn what the research team is learning. And, you know, if we stick to just one, that's going to exclude a lot of people. So we try to just cover our bases. Some people like to read. Some people like to watch a video. Some people want to have a conversation. And we want to cater to anybody who's interested in learning about what we're doing. I think there's a, a really important big idea in what you're saying. It, and it reminds me of when uh, James Cameron did Avatar and... Um, there was some story that went around, maybe you know the details more than I do, but I think they created like 70 final versions of it uh, to go in a lot of different kinds of environments depending on what the audio part was going to be and what the video part was going to be. And so they just, they took the same set of data basically and, and rendered it all these different ways for these different audiences. That's maybe more technical. You're talking more kind of uh, contextual. Um, but to think about... You know, you think about someone making a movie, they just make the movie and they ship it. Uh, and you realize what it takes to be state of the art. And this is where I guess my metaphor for you guys is, is that uh, you are doing something very state of the art. And that means that, that you're trying to render your 
your data or your findings in many, many different forms in order to engage as many different people inside your organization. That's, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and while we don't quite have the budget of James Cameron, uh, we do have agency to create these artifacts, to hire a videographer, uh, to provide our findings in whatever means we think is going to be most effective. And the makeup of our team is pretty indicative of that. Uh, one of my colleagues is Dr. Larissa Wolfram-Voss. She's a, she has a PhD in rhetoric, so she studied how to communicate with people. Uh, so she's constantly thinking about what's the best method to deliver this information. Uh, another one of my colleagues is Steph Troth. She's managed uh, an agency, so she's thinking what's the best way to explain the, the business side of what we're seeing uh, to stakeholders around the company. So it's a real multidisciplinary team thinking about multidisciplinary, I guess, delivery methods, if you want to put it that way. That's fantastic. That's, I, I think that's, uh, my eyes are opened. Uh, I think the questions, you know, we might hear from each other in this field are, what's the best way to do X? And, you know, I think anyone with experience would say, well, there's multiple ways and it depends. But what I'm getting from you is, you know, it's just a richer version of that, including telling the same story multiple ways and, you know, making that a competency. Sure. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is create three artifacts for every project. And that is a quick email that just has some bullet points, a link to the raw data, which might be a spreadsheet, and then a link to maybe a richer report. So at the very bare minimum, somebody who just wants to read the highlights can see the bullet points. Somebody who's maybe a quantitative researcher and wants to dig into the numbers can create some pivot tables in our spreadsheet. And then somebody who really needs to get the extra in-depth detail can read our full report. And that's in addition to any other artifacts like a video or a poster or you know, a chart, whatever it is that we deliver. We try to at least have three different uh, deliveries, short, long, and spreadsheet style, I guess you could put it. <laughs> And are there signs you're able to see internally that either data or information frameworks, stuff that you're coming up with and kind of putting out there in these different ways, do you see it take root? So just earlier this year, we were studying e-commerce companies, as I mentioned earlier. And we typically ask, what software do you use or what apps do you use? And among these small business owners and these small retail shops, we kept hearing about Instagram which everybody uses Instagram, but it got us thinking, you know, what is the connection between MailChimp and Instagram and small business or MailChimp and Instagram and e-commerce? And we realized that a lot of these shopkeepers might get inventory and maybe they take a picture of it with Instagram and maybe they just want to send a quick email right there while they're unpacking their inventory that's just come in, you know, off the truck and they want to say, hey, you three customers, I think this is a product you might be interested in. So uh, our director of UX, Aaron Walter, he walked over to our mobile designers and he said, I have this idea. I keep seeing that our retail customers are using Instagram. And maybe there's a quick way where you just launch an app, select a photo from your Instagram library, and send it to a few customers on your mailing list. And the mobile designers took that idea. They built a prototype. We brought in some of our customers. We tested it out. They gave us some feedback, and then we shipped a product that was just based on going out and interviewing customers, connecting the dots between their behaviors, their context, and their app usage, 
And we launched a product that makes it easy to send a campaign to specific customers on your mailing list using photos either from your phone library or from Instagram. So that took place in a matter of about eight months, and that was research in the field, collaboration between our teams, and shipping a product. And it was pretty rewarding to see how research influenced that. That's fantastic. And and, and that's research. Were you looking for that kind of opportunity no, uh, in we, the research? we weren't. It was really just research into who are these customers, what are they doing, uh, what systems do they use, what is their day-to-day like. And, you know, sending an email campaign is not trivial. I mean, we make it quick and we make it easy, but it's still time out of your day. But everybody's got their phones out, everybody's Instagramming, so why not just play off of that? And why not just create an app that that kind of fits into that mindset of quick sharing? Not only quick sharing, but quick collection, taking a quick picture, and then sharing it with a few select people while it's on your mind, instead of making it something you have to add to your checklist of things to do as you run your business. That's great. And so what do you think the conditions are inside your organization where that was able to happen? Because, I mean, the the, sort of the counter narrative often is that, um, you know, groups like yours are finding things that are uh, exciting and that are actionable as opposed to just interesting from a researcher's point of view. Uh, But there's things that get in the way of anybody buying in and taking action. Um, and and it's, your story just seems like, you know, everyone was kind of pointed in the same direction. And I wonder if you can reflect on your own culture and see what makes that happen. I truly believe that ideas can come from anywhere here. Uh, we are empowered to listen to our customers. We don't go out researching products. We research people and we try to better understand what would make them happy, what would fit into their lifestyle, what would fit into their day to day. We don't go out with an idea for a product in mind. And I think that that subtle shift in just being interested in our customers, it empowers us to come up with ideas and we can quickly validate, no, we can build this and it will fit into how they run their business. It'll fit fit into the time of day when they are on their devices or when they're working. And so if that's your operating principle, can we make our customers happy and does this fit into their lifestyle? It makes it real easy to get buy-in on project projects and, and products we want to build. So Snap came about because we could see there was a real use case for this. Snap is the name of the, of the product that you guys launched. Correct, MailChimp Snap. And time and again, anytime that we've, we start that over, time and again, we've when we speak to customers and we hear how they work and just what their day-to-day is like, it just makes it real easy to paint a picture and tell a story about our customers and figure out what we can do to make their lives a little easier and make use of our software, be it MailChimp, be it Snap, make that a little easier for them. So this, I love how you said, uh, we're studying people, not products. I'm paraphrasing it, but you put it really in a nice way. Um, it makes me think that, and you mentioned this too, with the describing their monitors and their, you know, people setups and so on. That the, this issue of context is obviously really important to you know how you're able to get the kind of information that 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 provides these ideas. Yeah, to me, I I live and die with context. Um, I go into an interview and the questions are important, but I pick up on body language and I'm also looking at you know I guess voice inflection and 
equipment and the the office culture. I think all of that is as important as the data that you collect and the answers to the interview questions. So, you know, right now you and I are speaking uh, over an audio Skype connection and not seeing your face is driving me crazy because I, I just live and die on, on the context. Uh, it's really important to me in how we research. I need to see the office. I need to see the equipment. I need to pick up on the office culture. Um, you know, something that I like to do is, you know, we'll ask, tell me about a typical day. And somebody might say, well, you know, I got up this morning and uh, I got some coffee on the way into the office. That right there is an opportunity to get some, some context. So I could say, well, how did you pay for your coffee? Oh, I used a credit card. Um, and do you remember, you know, how they, what kind of system they're using when you paid for your coffee? Oh, uh, I didn't really pay attention. Or, oh, they used uh, Square. Well, mentioning Square tells me a ton about this customer that I didn't know already. I know that they're, a bit, they're pretty tech savvy because, one, they know the difference between a cash register and a point-of-sale system. They are technically the same, but I guess a, a modern point-of-sale system. And two, they know the difference between Square and another point-of-sale system. So I can create a persona around this person based on what they do, but also how savvy they are around technology. Those little bits of context are everything to how we research here. We spend a lot of time traveling and going out in the field and talking to customers, not just because we want to know them, but we want to know more about, you know, what their day is like, what their life is like, all the things that we can't get sitting here in our office. That's a really lovely case for, um, I guess, kind of beyond empathy. I think the story is there's a lot of, of um, motherhood and apple pie kind of reasons why we should know people as real people. And, and not that those aren't true, uh, but you're connecting the dots, I think, in a lovely way that says that that information helps us do our job. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, you know, last year I was doing an interview with a customer, and they were a music promotion company. And while we were in the middle of the interview, one of the bands they represent came by. And the office for this promotions company happened to be next door to a coffee shop. And so this band dropped by and they said, you know, I think we'll set up and do an acoustic show next door. And that context of seeing, okay, it's very normal for a band to drop by. It's very, it's, that's part of their day to day. But seeing that maybe there's an opportunity to get the word out about this. Maybe there's a MailChimp angle. You know, a band drops by all the time. How can they quickly spread the word with people nearby? hey, they're playing a show next door, come on by. Or there's got to be some way to translate what we're seeing in the context of a band dropping by. How do we translate that into use of our app? And I'm not saying we're always looking for the business opportunity, but we're wondering, is there a way to make our app easy for this situation? Because this is their day-to-day. Maybe there's a way to make our product fit into it a little better. Uh, And again, with MailChimp Snap, now that's very easy. Take a picture and send it out to the people nearby who are able to come and drive to the coffee shop and see that concert on a moment's notice. Were you in the field for that particular experience? I, I was on in the field to interview that customer because they seemed interesting, but not because of that particular right. uh, that particular fact. So let me ask you a sort of nerdy researcher to researcher question. Sure. Uh, you're because you've told that story kind of in hindsight now. And as you said, you're not always looking, you're not, not everything is about the opportunities, mm-hmm. but you're able to see that one. 
Um, if you go back to when you're there and this amazing thing happens in the field where suddenly context really pays off because here's an experience you wouldn't have thought to ask for, let alone, you know, consider that it could even happen. Are you at, at that moment when you're just doing the researcher thing of shifting gears to accommodate this new, this new experience, are you having the thought about opportunities that you've just described then? No, I'm not thinking about opportunities right then and there, but I am thinking this is really important and there's something to this. So it's more of a, you know, putting a star in my notes or making it really bold, like band drops in. If you look at my Google doc from that day, it probably says, you know, band drops by exclamation point. And then, you know, in hindsight, as I see that we're developing Snap, I can point to this as validation or a use case. So noting it, uh, being aware of it, and then saving it, I guess, filing it away for later is important. Often when we debrief after an interview, um, me and whoever I did the interview with, I'll look back at those bolded notes or the things I've starred, and I'll just say, there's something to this. And that's code for, I don't know what this means, and I don't know if there's anything that we'll build based on this or if this has any significance. But in the moment, this meant something. Let's remember this. Yeah. Let me switch gears a little bit. Um, Can you just talk a little about the history, uh, your own history with MailChimp and the history of the team and kind of what's where you've come from and to get to this point that you've been describing for us? Sure. Let me, um, I'll take you way back to my story. Yes, <laughs> that sounded, please. That sounded totally egotistical. Let's make this about me. I think we should have some music come in, some like way back music. Can we do that? Sure. <laughs> so back when I was an undergrad, I, I reached my credit limit where I needed to pick a major. Like I couldn't take any more classes without declaring a major. And of all the majors that were available to me, advertising just seemed fine. I wasn't passionate about it, but I figured I'd get to learn a little bit about research and writing and I'd get to be a little creative. Um, And it wasn't until I was most of the way done with that that I discovered graphic design. Um, So I stayed in school a little longer and took as many graphic design classes as I could as an unofficial minor. I was able to work out a deal where I could take some classes in the art department. Um, Because otherwise, if I wanted to actually study graphic design, I would have had to stay in school for about three more years, which wasn't really something I wanted to do. Uh, I had a lot of uh, friends who were in punk rock bands and who ran labels. And I'd look at the albums and I'd think, you know, I I could do this. This is what I want to do. I want to design albums. So after I got out of school, I just, I kind of started doing it. You know, I guess it's that fake it till you make it thing where I said, I'm a graphic designer and I design albums. And I did that for about 10 years. Uh, I pigeonholed myself into punk rock and indie rock. And it was great until I was doing the same thing day in, day out, working with the same type of clients. And I burned myself out pretty bad. I knew I liked the idea of design, but I was tired of doing it. Uh, And at that time, a friend of mine was a professor at Georgia State University. And he said, you know, we need somebody to teach design and typography here. So that sounded fantastic to me because it was still design and it was still design thinking, but I didn't actually have to do it myself. So I started teaching and I loved it immediately. And I thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, And then I found out that if I wanted to do it for the rest of my life, I needed to go back to school and get my MFA in design. So that's what I did. Uh, and I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design, 
and started getting my MFA in design. And it was during that time that I discovered user experience. Um, I came across Luke Robluski's book about web form design, and mm -hmm. it, it kind of changed my life because for the first time, design made sense. It wasn't just about aesthetics. It was about logic and research and testing and putting things into sequence. So it was design and it was problem solving, but it wasn't about aesthetics. So I finished my MFA um, and my thesis project was on Apple's terms of service and just how for a company that's so devoted to user experience and aesthetics, their terms of service looked like it was designed by a lawyer for lawyers. And so I redesigned it as a user experience design project and made them usable and readable. And I studied, you know, HCI and I studied uh, accessibility to make sure the color palette was not going to be unreadable or unviewable. Um, and I studied Luke, Luke's recommendations on forms. Um, I read every book I could about user experience design. I did this thesis project and it got noticed by Aaron Walter here at MailChimp. Uh, we met for coffee, um, and he said, you know, the project you did for your thesis on redesigning Apple's terms of service from a user experience perspective, why don't you come to MailChimp and do that kind of work for us? And so I realized I could either start teaching then, or, you know, I could teach anytime, but MailChimp was kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do this work that was really exciting to me. Uh, so that's how I ended up at MailChimp. So one of my first projects here at MailChimp was to answer the simple question of, who is a typical MailChimp customer? And so for this project, I worked with my, uh, my colleague in the UK. Her name is Steph Troth. And together we set about defining who is a typical MailChimp customer. And we started by interviewing people around the company, uh, you know, people who had been here for years. And we asked them, who do you think uses MailChimp and why? And then we started looking at the data, looking at industries that were signing up for our product. We were looking at... Um, you know, who pays for our service versus who is free? What, what integrations do they use? Um, and we painted this picture of, you know, here's who we think uses MailChimp and here who is the actual MailChimp customer. We came up with five distinct personas, which were our, um, I guess, our imaginary MailChimp customer, I guess our idealized version, and then four other ones. And we created these personas and we turned them into posters that we hung up around the office. And that was really the turning point where research became a real thing at MailChimp. It wasn't just something that was done as a project. It was, we have a research team and we're bringing value to the company. And that project kind of launched us into a, I guess it gave us agency where now when somebody had a question about anything related to MailChimp, they could come to us and they could say, can you study this the way you studied who our customers are? So that's, that's really how MailChimp took shape. And that's not to say research wasn't done here previously. Um, my colleague, Jen Downs, who has gone on to work for a startup, she really did a lot to revolutionize, uh, I guess, mobile testing to study how people are using MailChimp on a mobile device. Uh, she did a lot of usability testing. But in terms of real qualitative research uh, and ethnographic style research, uh, that all started about three years ago. Uh, starting with that Personas project that Steph and I did. Since then, our team has grown. There's now five of us uh, of different skill sets. We're all generalists, but we each have our go-to strengths. You know, we have somebody who's an analyst who is 
looking at spreadsheets. She's taking her quantitative data and I'm sorry, she's taking her qualitative data, but studying it from a quantitative lens. So we'll code our data. She'll analyze it and she'll generate an, an analysis of it. We have people who are good at sharing the research, people who are good at uh, doing usability tests, people who are good at interviews. We all have our strengths uh, and they all work really well together to, sorry, I'm kind of losing the thread here, but all of our strengths combine to help our colleagues in different departments do their work with more information uh, and, and with a better understanding of who our customers are. That's a great history. And I, I like how your personal history kind of uh, informs the, your story of, of the team's history. Thank you. I got a little uh, long-winded there, but I hope it helped. <laughs> it's awesome. Right. We love, we love detail and we love stories. Um, what, when you, what do you look for? If it, I don't know if it's any one thing or any set of things, but when you're talking to people about joining this team, which has grown, what are some of the things that you're paying attention to? I'm looking for humility first and foremost. I don't want somebody who thinks they have all the answers. I don't want somebody who can't collaborate. We look for strong collaborators, strong storytellers, and a lot of humility. Because if you're not humble, you're not going to be able to make yourself subservient to the information or subservient to the interview subject. You need to be, you have to go in with the mindset that, you know, the customer knows more than you do and that your colleagues know more than you do. Um, my, I guess my operating philosophy is that everything is important until proven otherwise. And I kind of extend that to the people I work with. Everybody's an expert and nobody's proven me otherwise here. I, everybody here has strengths and they all have skills and I can learn from everybody I work with. And I look for that when I'm looking for team members. I want people I can learn from and people who are willing to learn from me and willing to learn from everybody else they encounter, be it here or out in the field. My voice just cracked really bad. So be it here or out in the field. What, um, you know, given, given your culture of ideas come from anywhere or can come from anywhere, I, I'm still curious about, uh, you know, from an organizational, structural, org chart point of view, where does your group sit within the, the whole MailChimp structure? So the research team is, uh, we work very closely with our data science team. And the data science team feeds data to everybody, designers, developers, marketing, support, knowledge base. So all the information is being gathered by us uh, everybody on, under the data science umbrella and anybody at the company has access to us and to what we know. We wait for them to ask or we give it to them proactively, but we are uh, very accessible to everyone in the company and we try to share as much as we can with as many people as we can. I mean, in hearing you describe that, there's almost like there's a, I don't know if it's a hub and spoke or some kind of other model around, uh, you, know, you know, throughout MailChimp, what, how you're engaging, uh, you know, who your, who your work is being shared with. And that's, and maybe it sounds like that's even more important or more defining for the work that you're doing than say something like in more of a hierarchical reporting structure. Yeah, we're very flat in how we work. I mean, certainly there are team leads and project leads and, you know, once a project or a research finding is captured, we share it with the people who need to know it. But Let's say there's a developer who's building something 
for an Android device. If I happen to have done an interview and the person I was interviewing is using an Android device in an interesting way, I will seek out that person, that developer, and say, hey, I saw something interesting and just wanted to pass this along. So there are formal channels of communication where a report or a video will go to the person who needs to see it first. But nothing is really a secret, and we try to share either through conversations, through meetings, through our, through the archives that we create. And so it sounds like the size that the company is at is uh, makes that feasible. Is that true? Yeah, we're at a sweet spot in terms of how big our company is where you know, we're growing and it makes it harder to have those one-to-one conversations, but we still try to maintain that those open lines of communication where if I run into somebody in the hall, I can have a conversation with them. And if I need to have a meeting with an entire team, that's also a possibility. Or if I need to send a report to an entire department, that can happen too. There's really no limits. Nothing is, uh, nothing is siloed off. Whoever needs the information can get the information. Yeah, I had been thinking about uh, in that great research way where, you know, your question presupposes a, a framework and you've really changed that for me. Uh, you know, I like to, I had this assumption that, you know, where research sits relative to other functions uh, can be defining in terms of what impact they're able to have or how they're working. Um, and while that may be true in some cases, in your case, that's not the defining factor. It's really more about what is the overall collaborative culture at MailChimp and that flatness that you're describing, that that integrated kind of shared mission. Um, it seems like, you know, who your boss is and who their boss is seems relatively moot for the kinds of things that we're talking about. That's a That's a really good way to put it. It's really just about making informed decisions. And so anybody who needs to be informed, they have agency to get that information. And whether that's over, you know, instant messenger or an email or a meeting, there's really not a lot of walls. Uh, anybody can ask for it, and they will get what they need and more uh, to make better decisions about the work they do. Do you have thoughts about um, where you'd like to see things go with, you know, how research is being done at MailChimp? And I'm not asking so much as, you know, what's on your growth roadmap, but um, just, you know, big picture ideas or anything that's kind of, uh, you know, tickling you? I really love the idea of presenting the full picture. And the full picture is this that magical combination of quantitative and qualitative data. Our team is really great about going out and speaking to people and getting the context. But the stories need to be backed up with secondary data. Lately, we've been taking a more holistic approach to how we work. We do an audit of every available piece of secondary data on a given topic. We find the gaps in our knowledge. We will then go out and send a survey, or we will set up interviews. We'll fill the holes in our knowledge, and then we come up with a novel way to share it. Um, It's taken us a few years to get to the point where we now know this is how it should work. What I'm excited about is every time I think we've figured out the best best practice for us, we figure out a new way of doing things. Last year, it was putting everything into Evernote. This year, it's taking what's in Evernote, taking uh, the data that our quantitative data scientists have and marrying that into a a fuller picture. So I don't have an idea of what research will look like at MailChimp in a year, but I'm excited that 
every year we seem to get a little smarter, a little more efficient, and a little bit more uh, informed about how we should do our, our projects. I want to ask not so much a MailChimp-focused question, but you know, thinking about this thing that you do that supports other things that companies do, if that's a fair enough framework. And, sure. and just, you know, what do you think, what do you think research does? What, what's the role? What's the benefit uh, of this kind of thing? I think it really depends on the company's philosophy. I mean, if you're researching a product, you're going to only find really information about your product. I think the real value of research is to go in with an open mind. And that is, what can you learn from your customers independent of this product or this idea you have? And then after the fact, you go in and you see, does your product fit into what you just observed? So when my team goes in for an interview, we don't really go in with a list of questions. We just go in with a few bullet points that we want to make sure we somehow, some way cover during the conversation as organically as possible. Because we don't want to ask questions that lead us just to an, to validation of an assumption that we have. We don't want to create the situation where we're only seeing what we want to see. We try to go in, I guess it's a grounded theory, where whatever happens, happens, and it becomes important because it's happening in the interview, not because we go in looking for it. Does that make sense? Am I, did, am I, did you say grounded theory? I did. Can you explain what that is? Uh, probably not very eloquently, but the idea is you let the data dictate what's important. You don't, you don't put parameters on what you're looking for. So, for instance, uh, one of the ways we collect information from customers is through email. They can give us feedback about our app. This isn't tech support, and it's not uh, a survey so much as just send us an email about something you have to say about our app. That is just a data dump. It's people will give us ideas or they'll talk about pain points that they have, which aren't really technical issues. It's just how our app could make their lives a little easier if we changed one thing. That is a perfect example of grounded theory because we're not looking for anything in particular. We're not asking about anything in particular. But over time, trends will emerge from those emails we get and we'll see, oh, this is something we need to fix. This is something we need to build or this is an integration that we need to connect. You talked about subservience to the information being kind of an individual's mindset, uh, but now it's almost, it's, it, it kind of scales up, I think, as you're talking about that. To, you know, subservience to the information is, is grounded theory, I think. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, of course, we go in knowing that we're still there on behalf of MailChimp. We're looking, we're coming from technology, we're coming from software but I'm less interested in specific questions about my business or software than I am about who are the people who I'm speaking to? What are they doing? What motivates them? Are they intrinsically motivated? And if they are, then that means that they are going to seek out better products. Are they just doing, are they using MailChimp because their boss makes them? Well, that changes the context of who this person is and why they're using our software. I go in with blinders on. I'm sorry, that's the opposite of what I meant to say. <laughs> What's, what, what is the metaphor for? I go in with no. open eyes. Yeah. I, I go in with a clear eyes, full heart, can't lose. I'm sorry, that's Friday Night Lights. 
<laughs> the cultural references are getting thick here. <laughs> but the, but I, I, even though blinders are meant to focus you, there is something about, I mean, I like your, your imagery because there's something about a device that you attach that directs where you look. And I, I mean, uh, if we could do like a conceptual product design here for researchers, it would be like eye stretchers or something, something that that, yeah. that sort of forces you to have that that open that open eyes. Yeah, take in everything. Don't don't just look in one place. Look around the whole room. Um, there's a psychologist that I've become kind of a huge fan of, and I'm not even sure if he's alive anymore. But his name is Yuri Bronfenbrenner. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he developed this ecological model of human development. And his premise was that to understand people, you had to understand not just the the person, but all the little interactions that person has. So the people that they speak to at work and the people they speak to at home and the people they speak to at church or temple or what have you. And then you also have to look at the system of government under which they live. Uh, who's the president? You know, how's the economy doing? There's all these things that don't affect them directly, but it still impacts their lives. And then you also have to look at, you know, what are the norms for the culture in which they live? Because a customer in North America has a very different way of looking at the world than, you know, a customer in India or in Australia. And then you have to look at where they are in time because the person using MailChimp today versus the person who was using MailChimp three years ago, they might be very different. Uh, and this idea that you have to look at the entire ecology, that's, that's what guides me as a researcher. I don't just want to talk to this person. I also want to understand where this person fits into their office, where this person fits into their neighborhood, um, what kind of person this, what kind of person is this person I'm interviewing? Uh, I really want to get that that full picture. I need the context, and that helps me make a better decision about what's important, or what's important for our developers and designers to know. Rick, this this is fantastic stuff. I want to just do a couple of wrap up questions. Sure, anything. Um, and I'm I'm going to do the researcher wrap up questions, which is to ask you. If there's something we should have talked about that we didn't, that you want to make sure people hear. There's one thing I think we need to talk about, and that is uh, on Jeffrey Zeldman's uh, show, his big web show, he did an interview with Jason Fried last year, uh, and they called it Two Jews Talking About Web Design. And I'm a little disappointed that you didn't start this interview off by saying this is two Jews talking about customer research. We could always cut the tape and, and go back. <laughs> Cut the tape. It's not really tape, but the other elephant in the room is that you know you and I spoke a few months ago, and I I gave you a really great title for this podcast, which you laughed at. <laughs> and, and I want to research and better understand why the Steve reporter goal didn't make the cut. <laughs> Maybe that could be a special episode title. Okay. I don't know. I like the special episode title, and I don't haven't figured out if there's going to be episode titles. I thought episode titles would just be the name of the person, but maybe we can have, you know, if we were, if we were Colbert, we would layer the titles. So it would be dollars to donuts, the Steve reportable colon two Jews talk about research. I think that's fantastic. Do we want to leave any of this in? It couldn't we, hurt. <laughs> we may, we may have to, uh, no, I, I can't think of anything that you didn't ask about. Uh, I think we covered how we work and the philosophy of MailChimp research. Um, is there anything you feel like we, we didn't cover? No, I think this is really great. You've opened up my mind a lot. And I was going to ask you if you have any questions for me, but you already, you know, they were more sort of accusations. 
Uh, <laughs> no, I, which I, I think I, if it's going to be two Jews talking about anything, I guess we're going to get some accusations. I'm sure we will. Uh, I do want to say that your book. No, you just accused me of a couple of things. And then people I don't mean from others. I mean from each other. Well, isn't it natural though that other people will accuse us of something? As Jews, <laughs> we're worriers. We have to worry about these things. Um, your your book was uh, very influential in how we thought about ethnographic research, and we call it ethnographic research. But if you ask an academic, of course, what we're doing is not ethnographic. It's just, as Kelly Goto would say, a deep hangout or, uh, you know, a, a customer interview. But your book was really uh, a great resource for us. So thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I also, I don't know if you want me to plug somebody else, but there's another person who's yes. doing research. It's research, but it's also UI design. Uh, I really like the work that Samuel Hulick is doing with his useronboard.com website. All he does is study onboarding from a design perspective, uh, onboarding into you know signing up for and using an app, and every week he's tackling a different one. I highly recommend it. Uh, I've learned a lot just how to think about a product and how to think about where people might get lost as they're trying to use your app. And it, it's opened my mind into things we need to study, uh, things that need to become formal research projects here at MailChimp. So just wanted to plug that. I don't know if there's a way to fit that in, maybe in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll get that uh, for people. Okay. That's, that's great. All right. So thank you very much, Greg. Appreciate your time and uh, your uh, all your detailed uh, stories and your big ideas and a lot to learn from. So thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Steve, it was a real honor to speak to you. you know, I've admired your work for a while, so this was a career highlight. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dollars to Donuts. And thank you to everyone that helped me put this together. You can get links about this episode, listen to other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and read the transcripts at portugal.com slash series slash dollars to donuts. You can buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. Get in touch with me at portugal.com to start exploring how we can work together.